millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the evening of the 30th of October 1938, puffs of green gas were seen erupting at regular intervals by astronomers from the planet Mars. The unusual activity was reported live on the radio to millions of listeners. Once the unidentified flying object had reached our planet, it crash-landed in the nowhere town of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. What was seemingly a meteorite was inhabited, and what was inside was proving to be decidedly hostile. Radio listeners heard eerie reports from live at the scene, and when the Martians started to move, using a deadly heat ray which set anything it touched aflame, The broadcast went silent. Those hearing the broadcast fearing for their lives fled their homes, called their loved ones, and police stations received droves of inquiries asking what to do. One man who wasn't from Mars was behind this Martian invasion. And today, we'll be uncovering the mystery behind the hoax that seemingly fooled a nation as we uncover the macabre mini-mystery of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. another macabre mini mystery. If you're new here, then hi, my name's Nikki. And if you're not new, then nice to see you again. And thanks for joining me whilst I disappear down another rabbit hole of mystery. Today, I'll be looking at one of my favourite mini mysteries, which has fascinated me for a long, long time. And that's Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast from 1938. 
But before we descend into our story, if you are new here and you like weird and wonderful stories, dark, spooky history and the occasional bit of true crime, then do please hit that subscribe button and check out some of my other videos as I'm sure there's plenty here to keep you entertained. So the mini mystery today has me heading into a topic I adore very much, which is War of the Worlds. And if you've been around here for a little while, you'll probably know that. I've been a fan of this story for the majority of my life. I was introduced to it by my gran when I was eight years old, when she decided to play me Jeff Wayne's musical version of the War of the Worlds. Whilst I was drifting off to sleep at night. And ever since then, I've been equal parts fascinated and also terrified by the story. At the last count, I have around 15 or so copies of the book, all with their different covers. Here's just a few of them. And I possibly have more of them in the loft too. And I'm such a fan that I even have a tattoo of the Jeff Wayne's album artwork, as I think that's the best visual representation of what War of the Worlds is. So it's safe to say I have a problem. <laughs> But having said that, I only got around to listening to the Orson Welles version of The War of the Worlds around about five years or so ago, as somehow it had managed to just not really cross my radar. However, when I did encounter it, I was hooked. It's incredible, and I urge you, if you've not listened to it before, then to definitely check it out, because it is an outstanding piece of work. But don't go yet. First, listen to this. For those of you that have never heard of this radio play which befuddled a nation over the course of 55 minutes on Halloween Eve in 1938, then let me fill you in. The War of the Worlds is a work of fiction that was created by the author Herbert George Wells, who preferred to go by the abbreviated HG back in 1896. The book, which was originally published in parts as a serial in Pearson's magazine in 1897, and after its success was published as a book in its own right in 1898, and it's never been out of print since. The story recounts a tale of a Martian invasion which begins in a little town of Woking in Surrey, which just so happens to be where I was born, which is about an hour away from London. The main character who narrates the book, but isn't named, giving the reader a sense of being the main character themselves, recounts his experiences during the Martian invasion in a story-led diarised style which is delivered as if it really happened. The narrator, who is fond of popular science and astronomy, had more than a passing resemblance to Wells himself. Both of them lived in Woking, both were aspirational but active writers, and they both have an uncanny way of being able to explain more complex topics in a very easy-to-understand style. Wells' skill in communicating science to his readers, who may have only had a fleeting interest in the subject, was finally something people could understand. Up until this time, anything which was too complex was left for experts in their field, but Wells wanted to communicate his layman's understanding of the topic to others, and that he did. Even after his fiction books, he went on to write non-fiction science books, which were revolutionary for their time. He presented an easy understanding of the world which everyone could partake in, breaking down the barriers that learning was only for those who were in the upper echelons of society, even if that wasn't quite his intended effect with his stories. The War of the Worlds was a book born from a paranoia of a more human-than-alien threat in terms of invasion. Wells was an avid reader of the daily newspaper in order to keep his writing relevant and to stay up to date with the changing world around him. As a result, his writing reflected the state of the world he was regularly reading about. Wars, colonialism, invasions and conflicts were splashed all over the pages of the papers, and it was only a matter of time before this spilled onto Wells's page. The beauty of the book was that anyone reading it could imagine themselves in the narrator's shoes. 
He lived in a modest home, had a modest job, a family, and he was written with not too much of a backstory to grasp. He was basically created for you to project yourself upon and to be led through the story by, a device which has been adopted by authors and screenwriters ever since. But how did Orson Welles end up picking this piece of fiction for his Halloween adaptation, when there were many other pointed gothic horror classics which were far more suited to what he was trying to achieve? Orson Welles was due to create something of a horror story for his Mercury Theatre on the Air production for Halloween, and drawing close to the date, he decided on Wells' classic book. Orson had been taken with the idea of presenting something which seemed real to his audience. He wanted to present a piece of fiction as if it was real life, and in order to do so, he needed to use the tools of the trade the radio had produced to grab people's attention. In 1938 in Europe, Hitler was exacting a series of horrific events which were leading up to World War II, and as a result, news bulletins were frequently heard interrupting the regularly scheduled programming. Orson, having noticed the deluge of interruptions of emergency bulletins, knew he could use this as a tool to engage an audience who had somewhat become habituated to these interruptions. But what story should he use to grab an American audience's imagination? The threat from Germany was very far away, but suddenly, another invasion was about to be beamed into the living rooms of the average small-town family. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Mercury Theatre on the air's production of The War of the Worlds was introduced that evening by a host explaining that the production they were about to hear was completely fictional. However, many average Americans were also into channel surfing through the different radio stations, much like whenever a song you don't like comes on the radio today. Many programmes, particularly evening shows, had many different skits and segments which would often be skipped over until they ended by impatient listeners in search of something better. On the most popular show that evening, a radio show which featured ventriloquism, if you can believe such a thing, had booked a not particularly popular musical act forcing a lot of people to switch stations. The creators of the War of the Worlds broadcast inadvertently managed to have an interrupting bulletin just as their new audience were tuning in, which held the newcomer's attention and kept them listening. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our programme of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. However, they'd missed the all-important briefing at the top of the show. The play progressed, intensifying as it went, and listeners were now hooked. Experts gave their thoughts on the events, and a terrifying live broadcast from the site of the crashed cylinder revealed the baddie in the form of grey, luminous-eyed Martians with snake-like tentacles. 
these unusual creatures proceeded to seemingly wipe out the innocent bystanders with a heat ray. Let's hear that report. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. In an attempt to rid the world of this alien threat, the militia are brought in to tackle the men from Mars by firing upon them. But in a squid-like inky retaliation, the Martians release a cloud of black smoke which asphyxiates the only hope the increasingly worried listeners now had. During World War I, poison gas had been used by America against German troops, causing hundreds of thousands of deaths as a result. So by introducing a poisonous gas, this would have triggered an innate fear response in those listening. Gas masks were now common in homes across the UK, and with the threat of retaliation still looming for Americans, Orson knew exactly how to get the prickles of fear rising on the necks of his listeners. He didn't stop there, though. Reports began flooding in seemingly from across America of more cylinders landing, and with people hearing how 7,000 men were defeated by one single Martian fighting machine that was now raised up on its three legs, storming around, destroying everything in its path, that was it. The game was over. Humanity was about to be destroyed. All hope was lost. Bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as... Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. Fifth Avenue, a uh, hundred yards away, it's 50 feet. <sighs> the scourge of humanity and the feeling of helplessness spread like a disease that night from home to home. Thousands of people called the switchboard, police and friends and family, seeking clarity of what they had heard. Were they in grave danger? What should they do? Should they run, hide or surrender or submit to their new Martian overlords? There was a lot to get their heads around. In the town where the fictional event took place, the police switchboard received 2,000 calls requesting help and nearby people reported feeling ill, having difficulty breathing and even seeing flames and unexplained lights in the sky. This radio play wasn't just affecting people's hearing, 
it was now having an effect on their vision too. Young men called to enlist in fighting against the Martians, and others went on to train stations trying to flee, people burst into bars telling people they should leave unless they wanted to be fried by the men from Mars, and people drove away from their homes with their children's heads wrapped in wet towels to save them from the thick black smoke which the Martians were seemingly now filling the landscape with. People were preparing for the end, when the end came. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theatre's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. <laughs> With the panic now subsided, America could breathe a sigh of relief and get back to their lives, but boy, were they angry. The next day, Orson was held accountable for his excellently executed Halloween prank and was brought before a jury of journalists who worked on making him seem like the devil. Do you think, Mr. Wells, that you might have taken unfair advantage of the public in using a method as a conveyance for authentic news? I don't believe that I have since. It is not a method original with me. It is used by many radio programs. Uh, I am terribly shocked by the effect it's had. I do not believe that the method is original with me or, or peculiar to the Mercury Theater's presentation. Do you think there ought to be a law uh, against such uh, enactments as we had last night or as a result of that? I don't know what the legislation would be. I know that almost everybody in radio would do almost anything to avert the kind of thing that has happened, uh -huh. myself included, but I, uh, I don't know what the legislation would be. We simply, radio is new and we are learning about the effect it has on people. We learned a terrible lesson. With Mr. Wells and the theatre company having been given the third degree and raked over the coals, the story was all over the newspapers. Many households read the paper and agreed with what they read thinking Wells should be held accountable for the panic they'd endured. Or at least their neighbourhood endured. Or at least a family member had endured. Come to think of it, no one they knew had mentioned anything about a Martian invasion. And they definitely didn't listen to it on the evening. The papers were awash with these reports of crazed people fleeing for their lives over the next week or so and a survey carried out six weeks after the live broadcast reported that thousands of people had been affected by the play. However, a survey carried out on the evening of the broadcast showed that the play at the time was listened to by a very small percentage of people. Out of 5,000 people surveyed, only 100 were listening to the broadcast, and out of that 100 that were listening, a whopping zero thought the play was real. Something wasn't adding up, but who was lying? 
By 1934, 60% of homes had a radio, and with the ongoing rise in access to a wireless, the invention of broadcast news media was evolving. With that came the threat to the written word. Newspaper sales were down, and trust in the free radio broadcast news was up. The agenda of newspaper companies was clear. Use the play as a way to turn the public against the radio, and as such, boost print sales once again. This was the original fake news story. But why did people surveyed weeks later report being scared, fleeing their homes, or wrapping their head in a wet towel? Well, there's no finite answer for that one, but I have a couple of theories. So allow me to digress here for a moment, and we're going to have a quick break to play a game. So complete these famous quotes for me, and no, you're not allowed to use Google. So give me the quote from Forrest Gump, which starts with the word life. Now onto Star Wars, Darth Vader says to Luke. And finally, Snow White, the evil queen's famous line that talks about a mirror. So in order, we have... My mum always said life was like a box of chocolates. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You never know what you're going to get. Life was like a box of chocolates, not is. Darth says, He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. No, I am your father, not Luke. And the evil queen in Snow White says, Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Magic mirror, and not mirror mirror. I can guarantee you got at least one, if not all of those, incorrect, and that's because of something known as the Mandela Effect, a phenomenon which causes us to recall things not quite as they are, and to be entirely certain that our knowledge of the event is true and correct. With the collective memory of the American people failing, you can see why they may have recalled hearing the broadcast of the bulletins on the evening, and even feeling unwell, but may have just been simply misremembering. 
Now on to my next theory. A collective memory is really a thing. When people recount a story, it becomes conflated with others' versions of events. If you've ever been through something extraordinary with a group of friends, then if you discuss the event afterwards when you come to tell it again, you'll have added in the other elements of the story which you didn't experience yourself. The human brain is spectacularly terrible at remembering, and so if it can sew things together to make it more compelling, meaning it'll entertain itself the next time it sends the words out of your mouth, then that'll be much more appealing to it. Think of your best after-dinner anecdote or your best funniest story. Now, be honest to yourself, is that really what happened? Did you say that funny quip after that person said that thing? Do that incredible sporting move or get that incredible bargain? Your brain will be telling you yes, but I hate to break it to you, it probably didn't happen that way. So anyway, my point here is that those people surveyed six weeks after the live broadcast were either delusional and thought they'd heard the play, or were flat out lying. Which has made the accurate reporting of this event incredibly difficult ever since. But it wasn't the first of its kind, and nor was it the last. Many cite Wells as being the orchestrator of the first ever hoax broadcast, But as with all great pieces of art, there's a degree of plagiarism involved. On the 16th of January 1926, 12 years before Wells' broadcast, listeners to a talk on the BBC on 18th century literature were rudely interrupted by an emergency news bulletin which reported that a riot had broken out in London. Listeners were told that many of London's landmarks, including the Houses of Parliament, Big Ben and the Savoy Hotel were on fire or had been exploded by homemade bombs. Reporters watched as a government minister was lynched and hanged from a tree, and the body then removed and subsequently set on fire on a barbecue. Panicked listeners who, back in 1926, only had scant forms of communication, worried as London was seemingly ablaze. For those who had family or friends in the capital and lived outside of the city, They believed everything they heard. The mock revolution was the work of Father Ronald Knox, a Catholic priest and satirical writer who, as a joke, decided hoaxing the nation was a fantastic idea. However, a few things happened which turned the hoax from a fun ruse into a bad, practical joke. The reveal of the hoax was stated at the top of the show, which many people didn't hear tuning in later to the broadcast. Further reveals weren't broadcast until much later in the day, by which time many people had switched off the radio and left their homes, called the authorities, or worked themselves into an exasperated panic. The BBC thought that the bulletins, which were scattered through another seemingly serious programme, were humorous and satirical enough that the general public would realise quite quickly that they were a joke, but they hadn't quite anticipated the general public's inability to detect the nuance of the skit. The newspapers were primed to publish a reveal in the paper that evening which would be delivered to almost all homes across the whole of the UK, but due to the weather being terrible and it being Friday, the newspapers were delayed. They weren't delivered until Monday morning, which only furthered the narrative that London was under siege, leaving many people assuming that the capital was destroyed. Eventually, when the papers arrived and people thumbed through them to see the devastation for themselves, they were met with an assurance that the 12-minute broadcast they'd heard was just a hoax. This didn't stop the BBC from having to issue a written apology in the newspapers for any panic they may have caused. But despite the angry listeners, mailbags full of appreciative letters arrived at the BBC in praise of Father Knox's play and requested he create more for the service, which he went on to do. 
but in a more presented style. So, with such an outrage over Wells' initial broadcast, you'd think it would be banned and never allowed to happen again. Subsequent adaptations which took into account Orson's clever use of familiarity as a narrative tool were set in South America, where the residents weren't familiar with the Mercury Theatre's hoax. One retelling of the tale was particularly cruel in the fact that for days leading up to its 1949 broadcast, the radio station added an extra item to its factual news report, saying that Mars was experiencing some eruptions and strange activity upon its surface. This retelling was betrayed without warning, and as such produced a far more measurable panic than the false reports from Wells' version. When eventually the radio station fessed up to the prank, it was too late. People were making their way away from the city, the military had been deployed, and the police were out of the city headed toward the countryside, where the Martians had supposedly landed. The apology when heard was not taken well. People formed an angry mob and headed toward the radio station. In the melee, someone set fire to the building, and six people died in the blaze. What had been a hoax had turned into a horrific real nightmare for the practical jokers. Even more retellings in subsequent years in Chile and also in Buffalo, New York, with the latter causing the Canadian military to send forces to the shared border between the two countries in order to stop the Martians from invading Canada. There's no doubt that Orson Welles' production of The War of the Worlds had a profound effect on many creators that came after him. The implicit trust placed in the media definitely had a lot to do with how the hoax was played out and how it was received. The audience who was expecting A Quiet Night In with a radio play got exactly what they were expecting, a good little spook, but nothing that wouldn't be forgotten in a few days. But for others, it became the difference between life or death and a truly terrifying ordeal to endure. Comparisons have to be made to other mould breakers of hoax media which came after, all of which have cited the Wells broadcast as an inspiration, even if just fleetingly so. Ghostwatch, which pretended to be a live TV broadcast in which a child is possessed on TV, leaving a BBC studio destroyed. The Blair Witch Project, whose marketing in the lead-up to the film being released even made a whole fake website which made people believe it was real. Even down to an episode of the impeccable Inside Number 9, in which a live TV episode supposedly went wrong, which was horrifically believable. So after all that, what did the originator of the story think? In a kismet meeting of Orson and HG, the pair sat down together to be interviewed, and despite HG saying he never intended for his work to be used to incite panic when he agreed to the adaptation, he was still very impressed with what Orson did with his work. Well, I've had uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences seemed to, since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name in an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. <laughs> See no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree. <laughs> Are you sure there was such a panic in America, or wasn't it your Halloween fun? 
<laughs> I think that's the nicest thing that a, mm. that a, a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. I, I think it's very nice of Mr. Welch to say that uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. Aye, that was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? <laughs> what Orson did with his broadcast was nothing new, and even today we still fall for the same tricks he used. After all, how many times have you been clickbaited into clicking on a you'll-never-believe-what-these-teen-stars-look-like-now article or have been dragged into a YouTube rabbit hole via video titles which don't have much to do with the video? That may even be the reason you're here now, come to think of it. It's less likely with a podcast, but what if I was to tell you a story on Macabre London that wasn't entirely true? Do you think you'd be able to tell, or do you trust me implicitly? Rest assured, I would never do that, but you can never tell or trust everything presented to you as fact as just that. Before the term fake news was even coined, there was War of the Worlds, the original fake news story, and something from which we've not learned a great deal. After all, the chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. you enjoyed that one if you can't tell already and if i didn't tell you enough then this one really is something that i can chat loads about and hoaxes and weird bits of media like this are my absolute fave so if you have another one like this that you'd like me to cover then please let me know in the comments below on youtube or ping me a message on my social media or leave it on the google form that's also on the description box too how do you think you'd fare during the broadcast if you hadn't heard the warnings would you be taken in by it I'm sure I probably would be, I'm completely gullible with things like that. If you enjoyed this video and you're still here even at this stage, then do yourself a favour and subscribe so we can hang out more and I can tell you weird stuff like some weirdo that you met down the pub. And please give the video a thumbs up and the podcast a rating if you're listening to the podcast, as it really helps me beat the algorithm and helps you be a good person by doing a nice thing for me. A huge big thanks to our executive Patreon producers, Sam, Barry, Veronica, Sarah and Kate, and all of our other patrons too. If you want more content from me, like the new show I have on Patreon, which is regaling weird things I find in old newspapers, then please check that out. Access to extra content starts at just $5 a month, which is just £4.50, and supporting the show starts at just $1. And you can also get access to some tangible goodies as well, depending on what tier you're on. I'll leave the link in the description if you want to check that out. Thanks for joining me for another macabre mini mystery. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.